The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, we've had a number of divas on the show, but we've never had an actual, by definition, diva. So by actual, you mean famous opera singer? That's exactly. Although, as divas go, Misha Bruger Gossman Lee seems pretty down to earth, apart from the never-ending name. <laughs> yeah, she is a diva, if if not by definition, uh, if if not by reputation. Anyway, she is by definition. She's uh, she's either a famous opera singer or she's a self-important person who is temperamental and difficult to please. We'll, we'll see, <laughs> or both. But I mean, not necessarily Misha. But it does raise the question: Why are so many talented and skilled women in all trades and aspects of life so often referred to? Is divas. That doesn't happen to men. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, if they did, they'd be called divos. Like they'd be called divos. There's no like men divas, right? No, no. <laughs> in any case, back to Misha. She is originally from Fredericton, New Brunswick, where she grew up singing in the church choir. Her star was on the rise from the get-go. She studied at the Boston Conservatory at U of T. She went to Germany, uh, got a master's degree in music there. She's appeared all over the world, won all sorts of awards, sang the Olympic hymn at the Vancouver Winter Games, was a judge on Canada's Got Talent, and um, up until quite recently was artist-in-residence at Opera Atelier. Yeah, kind of kind of cool. Lots of things. Um, and her latest project, it's called Zombie Blizzard. Uh, we can talk about that. It's a collection of songs composed by Erin Davis, but it's based on poems. And you can hear recitations by Margaret Atwood, who is kind of like Misha. She's, yeah, she's kind of like, she never freaking stops. So <laughs> so anyway, all of the songs done, written by Margaret Atwood, but uh, but sung by, by Misha, tackles issues of sexism, humor, grief um, and we'll play an excerpt yes we will we know when she's not performing Misha lives in the country in an, in the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia with her two sons and her husband jazz guitarist Steve Lee Misha have we encapsulated you properly because we could go on and on <laughs> now you have to know that I remain the artist in residence for Opera Atelier. You're still, oh, because when I checked, it said until 2023. Celebrating renewed contracts. That's what we're okay. celebrating renewed. All right. Yeah. Marshall Pinkowski and Jeanette Zing. Yeah. They're most beautiful people on oh, the planet. Statuesque. I try not to stand next to them. They're, they look like like fantasy creatures from from a, like the good guys. No, I started, yeah. I started when Opera Atelier first started in the 80s. I don't know. I, they either adopted me or I adopted them. And I talked to them about every production and they're they're so unique. And you guys have found each other. And obviously this is a, a natural collaboration. Yeah, I can't believe it. Like when you get to a certain point, I want to say in life, your career, when you finally realize that your life and your career should essentially be the same thing. I then started really honing in on the relationships that mirrored what I believe about the arts, about how to construct a family. And Marshall and Jeanette are very much family that I have chosen. So you're not a diva? I, I, I think we've got to, like, we, we set this up. <laughs> are are <Were> you? you? <laughs> Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Was it difficult? Was it because often sopranos about opera, female opera singers, because the songs were so difficult, they needed focus? Where did that come from? I think sometimes people 
misnomer the term prima donna and diva. Now, I don't think they're interchangeable. I think that a diva, and the reason we don't use devo is because I think it sounds too much like devil, and the men folk won't be having that. But prima donna, as in first woman, would have been the soprano of the house who was the star that attracted crowds. And so as first woman of the score of these houses that had house singers, she would have maybe had the reputation of being the most important. But we all know that any woman who sits in a position of importance or leadership, what follows quite quickly are usually terms that reduce her to being like some emotional nightmare. So you're not? No. (laughs) (laughs) Like, do I have standards and do I surround myself with people who understand those standards, including like my children? Yes. But that's just because we're called to excellence. But I can make anything sound lighthearted and you'll still end up doing what I want. (laughs) That's a skill. It is. It is. I was so struck uh, back in a thousand years ago when you had a heart attack or some kind of heart. And you were like, to me, you were like 12 and you're still 12. And since you've had two open heart surgeries and you're an opera singer, I was like, how on earth, how do you do that? How do you have a a bum heart? I think you've called it. I know, a super bum heart. heart. I mean, just so that the devil knows we've broken that generational stronghold off of the reverberations from me. But I do know that the stress has to go somewhere. Like it, it, whether or not it manifests in how I treat people, which would not be my wish, or the body absorbs it and eventually it comes to a head, or it's a genetic thing. All of those factors sort of whirlwinded in my life and gave me a platform on which to tell women that it's really important to take care of their hearts. Because right at this point, it is the number one killer of women, and in particular, Black women, is cardiovascular issues. So I just think that you're given challenges that will ultimately uplift the body and give you an opportunity to encourage other people. and. That's sort of what we are called to do is to turn our mess into a miracle, our test into a testimony. Come on now. I'm getting the alliteration. (laughs) You are. (laughs) So are are you going to perform now or? Yeah. Yeah. Time is I launch into we shall over. Go on. Not not bad. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you sing after like being an opera singer and having a heart attack? How do you like, how do you put those two together? Well, I think anybody that looks at my job on paper or my schedule on paper or what I've done on paper would probably consider it quite full or stressful, but that's not their box of Lego pieces to put together. That's my Lego pieces. It doesn't feel weird for me because I am tasked for it. I'm allowed to pursue what is mine and my gifting and my inheritance and the example that I'm meant to be setting for my babies so that they might also know that, you know, their gifting is something that is going to get used to help heal people, encourage people. But it's like, we have to 
shed ourselves of the fallacy that life isn't hard. Like it's not going to go smoothly. And if you're going to accomplish anything, you're going to be attacked in ways that you don't expect so that you get wisdom that you didn't think you'd ever get. From a physical point of view, I know nothing about cardiology, but I'm just like breathing, breathing deeply. I'm just asking you this question. Is it not good for you? For your heart to 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 fill your your lungs into, I mean, is that not is singing the way you do? Is that not a cardiovascular activity and maybe a good one? It's a super sport, like to oxygenate your blood with deep breaths like that. But that's sort of like asking if ballet is health, healthy for the which we know it isn't. It's not opera singing, classical singing isn't natural. So when you go to do it, you have to make sure that you're doing it with an eye to longevity, which was how I was raised in my technique. So when I started voice lessons when I was seven, it was, first of all, for the glory of God, I was taught by the music director of my church, the church that I was in at a classical music direct, uh, tradition, and couple that with listening to Saturday afternoons at the Met, the Texaco production. We didn't play any secular music in the house. And those were my pop stars. So for me, it didn't seem like a a risky business. And then my dad was not going to have me have a music career in which I would build my career singing in bars. So classical music, it was, but I was going to end up on stage one way or the other, whether it was on a pole or in front of an orchestra. Like I just had that kind of fearlessness, like people and crowds. And I don't like to be in crowds. I'm definitely an, an introverted extrovert, but I am not intimidated by being in front of a crowd. Just one more heart question, or maybe maybe Mo's got a couple, but I find it interesting in all of the pictures of you, like you wear a lot, you're not wearing one today, but there's, there's a lot of like V-necks and I, we can see your scar from the open heart surgery. You're going to show us the scar now. Oh, so you, you're not hiding anything. You're just like. No, let me, let me rotate so that, so that you're not seeing like, oh, look, is that my Canada Reads with you? Okay. Um, <laughs> But all rotates because the sun's coming this way. We live in the country, as you said. I think my example to women, to people who struggle with heart disease or even like fidelity in marriage, like my life has got to be an open book for the same reason that I stated before is of not being afraid of a crowd. I feel like in every crowd, there are always individuals that respond to something about me that I've not hidden that helps them on their journey to healing. So who am I to withhold or hide or conceal when I've committed to a life of performance? That being said, I can't make choices that aren't sustainable because I don't want to be fake. I don't want to be like an oversharer, but I certainly don't want to conceal or make people think that my life isn't as hard as theirs. And in some areas maybe harder just because of the two emergency open heart surgeries and the collection of, of, of suffering that has at the risk of sounding overly poetic befallen me. <laughs> I'm not victim. I'm a victor, right? So there's no condemnation in my mind for the hardship and mistakes that I've made, 
that I've made, but I can be open about it because, you know, I'm forgiven, not perfect, but progressing. Which kind of dovetails nicely into your memoir that you wrote at 39 with a lot of living ahead of you. But nonetheless, it was a very revelatory story and you did not shy from talking about things that that have happened to you and things that decisions that you've made good and bad. There it is. (laughs) (laughs) I need to put I need to add it to mine as well. That is a studious background. That is incredible. Yeah, I know. Pretty impressive, isn't it? I actually, half of those books came from my dad. But anyway, uh, and I haven't read them. <laughs> Love your attendance board. Like, that's <laughs> Like, that's fantastic. I haven't figured out what it is yet. Yeah, we don't but, know but what we it will. is. Um, but, you know, you better be there, I think. It's probably our motto. We don't know what it is, but you should show oh. up for it. <laughs> but back to being so open, both open heart in every way and open about your own experiences, good and bad, knowing that your kids will read this quite possibly. How was that? I'm talking about infidelity specifically, but there's a lot of other stuff in there. Like sexual sin and exploitation and the twisting of, you know, God's original intention for marriage, like all that stuff is really important for my sons to read. And I did write it for them so that they want, because they'll inevitably wonder it. Like at this point, they're eight and 11. And sometimes I'll like open it and read little excerpts. And they're like, mom, read the part about me, you know, because yeah, of course, you know, so it really was intended to be a resource for our family, whether it's a cautionary tale or a hemorrhaging, you know, recount of just a life lived full of blood. You know what I mean? Like you just got to get to the altar, put blood on it and know that it's going to lead to healing, to praise, you know, because we're supposed to have, I think, suffering in order to access parts of ourselves that we wouldn't be able to, to attain otherwise. And I lived in this sort of movable dome of morality where I really thought that the rules didn't apply to me. And woe to those performers or people who are set apart and praised for performance when really, I mean, the heart is what matters. And so I just didn't have a healthy heart on so many levels. And I continue to work at it. And My boys know that mama can be stinky and that God is the only perfect parent available. But the writing the book and going through that process and just the tears in that latent artist colony where I wrote the book at the Banff Center, really, I mean, it cost me a lot. At this point, like at 46, I'd do it again. Like it was traumatic for me to relive that. And I had a ghostwriter for a minute, bless her heart, who followed me around for three years and took interviews. And then she wrote what I called the Misha brick, which was just like a bunch of information that didn't sound at all like me. And I'd already taken the money. And then I realized I was like, oh, shoot, I'm going to have to write this. So in the process of going through the interviews and having to regurgitate all of the things that I thought mattered to me, you know, like the career highs and the list of like your, essentially your like spoken CV, which nobody cares about. Like, obviously if we're talking and I'm still alive and we're looking at like the office that I recently cleaned, there's the real triumph. Then you can take for granted that she's done some stuff, 
But does her family like her? What's her relationship with her mother like? Like, does she give to the poor? I I really think that at a certain point in your life, you're really having to accumulate a legacy of generosity above everything else. The Women of Ill Repute. I find it so interesting that you've done something with with Margaret Atwood. So she's a complicated person. She's taken a lot of positions that not everybody agrees with, but we kind of love her anyway. She's plunging ahead. She just lost her husband. And so there's lots about grief. She's written so much about sexism. Why did you choose her or did she choose you? Because she's kind of... She's kind of a character. <laughs> yeah. How'd you come together? Listen, I stalked that woman. Like, I was <laughs> merciless. Like, I would find her at the Gillers. I would figure out where she was reading. I would, like, write comments. Like, she, I know now she doesn't read the comments. But I would be like, oh, my goodness, wasn't that ever insightful? Like, I was a massive. I fangirled all over her until I insinuated my way into her life. And she is one of the most fascinating people. And I knew that if I could just get close enough and sit at her feet, I would learn so much. So when I'm with her, I really don't do a lot of talking. And she is so generous of heart and spirit that she sort of allows me to like prey on her. I voraciously read everything she does. And I I just know that she's the voice of the culture. Like for me, I love how fearless she is, even though all of us are afraid on some level about certain things. And the openness with which she lives and expresses I just really want that for me and my sons and in my marriage. And it's really a life that will outlive us all, right? So while we are still here all together, I wanted to do whatever I could to have a record of the fact that I respected her so much. And the much. result is uh, blizzard zombies, zombie blizzard? <laughs> I was like, you know, people might come to the concert expecting that there'll be like a blizzard of zombies. And I was like, yeah, but we come by it honestly, because it's the first two poems in the cycle. The first poem is zombie. The second poem is blizzard. And we go on from there. And it's catchy. Like, I remember saying in my friend's house, throwing out a few titles and they're nine-year-old when I said zombie blizzard was like, wait, what about zombies? <laughs> it's got, got your attention. <laughs> I, I think we found the title for our album. Yeah. You know, so, and she also like, she doesn't like the photo. She's like, that doesn't look like you. Why are you putting that on the cover? And I was like, sometimes Margaret, you got to go with the sassy photo. So that people show up <laughs> and then they're like, oh, check out. How is that? How is that dress held in place? Tape. Everybody yeah, taped, tape, two-sided, two-sided tape. tape. And I love the photographer, Lisa McIntosh, took that photo. Oh, we know right? Lisa. Oh, I do. So, yeah. Multiple reasons where you come at things and try and include as many people who are deserving of having their names said in my mouth as possible. So 
whether the photo looks like me or not, that's a photo that I get to say is by my dear friend, Lisa McIntosh. So there's that. And then that green thing is made by what was Magpie and is now call and response clothing. Come on. Like it just represents a lot for me. And the, it's a culmination of friendships and professional like trajectory because I really want classical music to do a new thing. There's no better industry positioned to usher in newness and innovation than one that has as its core basis originality and excellence and genius. So why not call Aaron Davis to write a song cycle that we call concert arias and Canada's most prolific, what's that called? Apocalyptic? Dystopian. Dystopian. I call it prophetic because this is bad news, but it's likely to come to pass. And Aaron answered my phone call and then allowed me to take their artistic output, put it through my body and voice and create Zombie Blizzard, where we also get to love on Lisa McIntosh and her photographic artistry. And now we have this collection that is represented in like this material thing, but it's going to last forever because it'll go into people's ears and brains and hearts and hopefully challenge the industry to create multi-genre bending, collaborative no-nos that turn into like yes-yeses. I don't know. I just made that up. That's no, it sounds great. Not that might uh, actually. Maybe, maybe. No, yeah, maybe. No, babies. No, it's yes, yes or no, no. I really want to ask you about racial inequality and how, like, you like how you ended up. You're in Fredericton now, which is kind of weird for an opera singer to be from Fredericton, but it's very, very cool. And I don't want to sound too Laurentian about it all, but, uh, <laughs> but, but it, it, it's kind of great, but it was only through some kind of show with CBC that you ended up finding out that you had this long, long history. Like now you're a Ghostman Bruger, Bruger Ghostman Lee because you've got married a couple times. Um, but the Ghostman, he was the the fifth grandfather. Anyway, tell us that that whole story and and why it, what, how it's influenced you. Yeah, solid. I love that question. It's a very odd thing to represent a history of courage and I guess it's freedom from slavery, literally, when you think of my Black ancestry. I am descended from Black loyalists, which is a complicated thing when you know that your liberators are also other people's oppressors. But I think what I love most about that complication is that it forces a conversation because it's it's not simple, this history of ours. Anybody's history is going to have like a myriad of conflict and gray area. And I was on CBC's Who Do You Think You Are? and discovered, did a little DNA swab and discovered that there was Cameroonian descendants that had been stolen from Cameroon, bought to the, brought to the East Coast, bought and brought to the East Coast of 
the what would become the United States escaped their slave masters and went to fight with the British behind British lines and then were granted emancipation in exchange for fighting for the British in the last stronghold of the British, which would, would become New York. And then they sailed north on the Concord. And you can see my family's name, Gosman, in the ship's manifest. And Fanny and John Gosman, the parents of Rose Gosman. And if you go across the line in the Book of Negroes, you see born free. So none of my ancestors were ever enslaved on Canadian soil. And I am seventh generation and my sons are eighth. So when you ask if I feel super Canadian and more specifically super maritime I have this deeply entrenched sense of belonging to this country and a real sense of gratitude for the fact that I get to raise my like swirly babies here. And they have dual citizenship with Switzerland in the irony of all ironies with their dad, my husband and their baby daddy. And so when I go to remarry and don't think twice about being black and picking a white husband and owning land and even getting to drive and practice my faith and love Jesus and read the Bible, which is banned in like over 50 countries worldwide. I make it very clear to my children that our existence is not normal and that the majority of the world does not live how we do here in the Annapolis Valley in Nova Scotia. I know I'm still very connected to Fredericton, Wendy, but I, I don't live there anymore. I followed my parents when my dad came down to study at Acadia Divinity College to become a pastor after he retired from the CBC. And now, ladies, I, I still feel really weird saying it, but I am in my second year of a Master's of Theology degree in practical theology. So it matters to me how the faith is passed on, how it's studied, the traditions that led us to how we practice it, what happens now? Like what happens now that we are able to speak so freely and openly about race relations and prophetic witness and how we're called to social change and awareness and speaking hard truths while also simultaneously giving people hope that when you know that we have been stinkers racially and in terms of the treatment of the genders and any issues of equity fueled by the demon of capitalism in all of its forms. And come for me, those of you who want to call me a conspiracy theorist, but the thing is, the math does not add up and these systems cannot abide. We have way too many poor people for how much money exists in this country. Well, it's getting better. I'm joking. It's just it's just getting worse. <laughs> well, in some ways, I'm just listening to Misha. I'm listening to you and thinking you have you have faith, you have love, you have enormous talent. You have such a layered life. You you have intellectual curiosity. You have m- enough money to enjoy all these things. And you didn't get these things cuz you were lucky. No. I mean, I got these things because I was positioned to multiply and I was raised to serve. And I think when you live a life of service, which is already countercultural, you end up 
living according to a math that will always have you fed. Never have I seen the righteous begging for bread. And that word righteous, don't get it confused with some buzzworthy Christianese that means that I'm better than other people. I'm not better. It's just that I do believe that I'm forgiven and I operate out of that forgiveness because I've been forgiven much. So I, I sort of have this duck water off a duck's back kind of vibe because I know everybody's in some kind of pain. But if I don't see their imago dei, if I don't see the image of God inside each and every person, then I'm liable to allow my anger issues, my sense of entitlement, my impatience, and my envy to steer my ship. And I, I, I refuse. I refuse. Well, Mo and I are trying to do all of those things with or without God, and uh, good luck to to all of us. Yeah, we're missing a we're missing a few of the, the couple uh, of uh, yeah. a couple of keys. <laughs> oh, it's lovely to talk to you. I, I I find it so interesting that you went from well, the rules don't apply to me, and I'm just going to do whatever I want to now. You're 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 studying theology. It's uh it's uh, and uh, and singing. <laughs> yeah, you're. It's funny because, like, this is a great way to lose your faith is to go to seminary because <laughs> all of a sudden you're part of this tradition that has intellectualized something that is super personal. So, never do I want anybody to think that, you know, just like classical music or yoga, there is a tradition that does not really have a relationship with the practice. So, whether or not you talk about God or study God, whether or not you know him only manifests in the fruit of how you treat people. Hmm. Well, that's the line I've been watching the Americans, and that's what the line comes down to from the the pastor guy, is it it all depends on how you treat people, and that's whether it's religion or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good show, by the way. Good show. Great show. (laughs) We're going to leave you or leave our listeners with uh, a piece from Zombie Blizzard, um, which is out. I'll get all the information, but we are speaking to you just a couple of weeks uh, weeks ahead of the release. March 1st. Okay, March Shout 1st. It. Shout it into all right. March 1st! <laughs> sing it. Now sing it. <laughs> March 1st! <laughs> or March 1st! There you go. Yeah. Can you do more? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, we're about we're gonna we're we're gonna play a piece right now. Uh, yeah, Wendy made a good point. You have to stop getting married, okay? Or if you do, <laughs> don't take their names or don't absorb their names, which I think you're doing. <laughs> I got the shortest one I could. Lee, you're right. <laughs> Let's hope it sticks for that. It now can turn my name into like an adjective, so you could say that you could do things in a. Ruger Gosmanly way. Yes. You can say that easily. The rest of us are going to have to practice. Well, you can never get divorced now. Yeah. So you Bruger have to Bruger Gosmanly. Bruger Gosmanly. Bruger Gosmanly. Yes, we're ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been lovely to talk to you. Um, thank you, Misha, for doing this and uh, and all the best with your album and, uh, and your studies and your family and your love and your heart. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you, Wendy. I appreciate the chat. I loved it. I laughed a lot. Yeah, Same. <laughs> we did too. We love you. We uh, we love all of it. So thank you. I love you too. 
what, what you didn't hear off the end after we stopped uh, recording our, and now we're back on is that when, so Misha has invited herself to your place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and that happened with Carolyn Taylor. And it's like, because you, you live in two beautiful places that are close to where, well, Carolyn lives in the same area as you. It's like, I, I sit there going, oh, okay, well, have a nice time. You'll just have to move. But I think you had a new name for her because we're we're playing Zombie Blizzard, but you had a new name. Yeah. I said <laughs> Blondie Blizzard, Blondie Buzzards. I can't. I have, I don't know. I don't know what it is. What an absolutely powerful and an impressive woman she is and so down to earth. And I love her so much. I know. I, I kind of slipped out at the end. I said, I love you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> kind of she, has that, she has that effect, <laughs> eh? She has that, you know, you will do what I want and you will love me for it kind of uh, strength. She managed to get Margaret Atwood, like, stalking we her. haven't officially asked her. We, we just stalk her in secret. Yeah. But but she actually reached out. She refused to be told no. And maybe that's maybe that's what you have to do. But She's uh, very tenacious, Misha is. And now she's studying, she's getting a doctorate in, in what is it? Practical theology, which is a bit of a oxymoron, but but not if if anybody can do it, she can. <laughs> I'm not going to pick up on that. Man herself, yeah, yeah. So that was uh, and you know, uh, such supreme talent. Well, I wanted to ask her about the husband. I've never heard that I word before. That. The husband, yeah, <laughs> the father, the baby daddy. They are, they are, uh, from what I've read, they're just, you know, one of those incredibly functioning, amicable relationships and they, they're co-parenting and so on. And, and uh, yeah, you know, just because a marriage doesn't work out doesn't mean it wasn't successful in its own way. I should be telling you that. I've never been, I've only been married once. But, you know, a relationship that ends isn't necessarily a bad one. It's all worthwhile. Yeah, no, I would, uh, I would entirely agree with that, um, and uh, we'll never be opera singers. But <laughs> <laughs> it was nice to hear her break out into song occasionally, so that was great. But uh, you can't be everybody. Go for it, more. Go. <laughs> Women of Ill Repute was written and produced by Maureen Holloway and Wendy Mesley, with the help from the team at the Sound Off Media Company and producer Yet Belgraver. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.